0: Thing off.
1: Okay.
2: Uh, well, we continue our journey through First uh, and Second Kings, and we are up to chapter twenty-one. And I want to talk on the subject matter tonight: family mysteries. And I trust that will become clear uh, in the introduction this evening. Family mysteries. Does everybody have a, a little study guide? Pass that one back to Rick. Any others? Who's that? Anybody else need one? Okay. Family mysteries. Talking about Manasseh this evening. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He was the longest reigning king in Judah. He was a wicked king. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord has said, "In Jerusalem I will put my name." In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors if only they will be careful to do everything. I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He's done more evil than the Amorites preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end, besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As for the other events of Manasseh's reign and all he did, including the sin he committed, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Manasseh rested with his ancestors and was buried in his palace garden the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. His mother's name was Meshulamah, daughter of Heruz. She was from Joppa. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He followed completely the ways of his father, worshiping the idols his father had worshiped and bowing down to them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and did not walk in obedience to him. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah his son king in his place. As for the other events of Ammon's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? He was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah, his son, succeeded him as king. A lady by the name of uh, Hannah Smith was the author of one of the most popular Christian devotional books of all times. Uh, The title of it being The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life, first published in 1875. She was a highly sought-after Christian speaker as well. Now, you would think by the title of her book, she enjoyed a trouble-free life. But that was not the case at all. Her husband was involved in several uh, moral scandals. He also suffered from bouts of depression. And finally, he abandoned the Christian faith altogether. They had three children who survived until their adult years. Her oldest daughter abandoned her husband and her two children in favor of extramarital affairs. Her daughter, Elise, married the outspoken atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell, And she, too, turned away from the Christian faith. Her son, Logan, became a well-known writer and moved in circles that were hostile to Christianity. And he, too, had no place in his life whatsoever for the Lord Jesus. Now, one wonders how such a dynamic Christian lady who was able to influence so many others for faith in Christ How did she lose her entire family? You know, you read her story and you think of the chapters that we've been going through in 2 Kings, don't you? Ahaz was a terrible king, but his son Hezekiah was the most godly king since the time of David. Hezekiah, remember, brought revival and reform. But his son Manasseh, that we read about tonight, was the worst of the worst, as we'll see tonight. Manasseh's son Ammon was a chip off the old block. Likewise, he was evil. But Ammon's son Josiah rivaled Hezekiah for personal godliness and spiritual leadership. I, I think all of this reminds us that parents have a huge influence in the lives of their children. But while they have a huge influence, they can't determine what their child's faith is going to be. You know, I also think of uh, somebody like Eli in the days uh, leading up to Samuel. You know, Eli had ungodly sons, and that's why people wanted a judge uh, to rule over them and, and ended up wanting a king. Also think of what Ezekiel the prophet says. Ezekiel says the soul that sins shall die. In Ezekiel 18 it says the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Yet you say, Why should not the Son suffer for the iniquity of the Father? When the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. uh, He shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? We're going to be reminded of this tonight, how different fathers and sons can be from one generation to the next. The first thing I want you to take note of tonight is a man without excuse. Look at verses 1 to 9. A man without excuse. Who is it that we're introduced to here? We're introduced to this man by the name of what? Manasseh. Manasseh. Now, you know, Romans 1 tells us that we are all without excuse. Because even the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, not only did Manasseh have the witness of the heavens, but he also had the witness and the testimony of a tremendous father. He had a great father, Hezekiah. And we've seen in the past couple of weeks what a great man Hezekiah was. He was obedient to God, He was even compared to David. None of the other kings were compared to David. Hezekiah actually was. He tore down the high places. He was courageous. He broke off ties with Assyria. And so what a great example Hezekiah had been. But now along comes his son. Manasseh came to the throne in 697 B.C. at the age of 12. Now, he ruled in a co-regency alongside of his father for 10 years. Okay? So I want you to think about this. He rules alongside of his dad. No doubt watching his dad's every move, probably. And so he has a great mentor in his dad. And yet, what does he end up doing? He goes the opposite direction. When his dad finally passes off the scene, and he's the only ruler, he's no longer co-regent, but he's the regent, he's the king, he goes the opposite direction. The irony is Manasseh becomes not only the longest reigning king of the southern kingdom, but he is also known as the most wicked king that the southern kingdom ever had. Think about that, folks. Their longest reigning king was the most wicked. You know, it seemed like he deliberately set out to undo everything that his dad had done by way of reforms. Verse 2 states that he followed the ways of the nations around him. He adopted a pro-Assyrian platform. You know, his dad had broken things off with Assyria, but Manasseh linked the two nations back up together again. Believe it or not, he's actually mentioned in Assyrian literature twice. The first time he's mentioned, he's mentioned as a king who supplied the Assyrians with building materials. The second time he's mentioned, he's mentioned as helping the Assyrian king in a campaign against Egypt. Verse 3 tells us that he rebuilt the high places that his dad had torn down. He also erected altars for Baal and Asherah, the female counterpart of Baal. And so what do we have here? Manasseh is the southern kingdom's version of who? Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel in the northern kingdom. Manasseh's Pretty much the southern kingdom equivalent to them. Verse 16 is even going to speak of Manasseh shedding innocent blood. Perhaps this is an allusion to when Jezebel had Naboth killed. So Ahab could take the property of Naboth, she had innocent blood spilled. Maybe verse 16 in in part is an allusion back to Jezebel and Ahab in that regard. We're also told he worshipped the heavenly host in verses 4 to 5. It's pointed out he built idolatrous altars where? Inside of the temple. Verse 6 says he burned his son as an offering like the pagans would do. Verse 6 also says that he used fortune tellers and dealt with mediums and those who consult the dead. And then as verses 6 and 7 also point out, in the temple, it's it's more striking in the original languages, in, 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 in the temple where God set his name, Manasseh instead sets the carved image of Asherah. And maybe that, like I say, maybe that comes out in Hebrew a little better. Where God set his name, um, Manasseh sets the name of Asherah. This is like a direct affront to God, a direct attack and insult to God. Can you imagine a king being so brazen that he does an act that's such an affront to the true and the living God. But that's what he does. He was a horrible man. It's like he invented ways to rebel against God and offend God. Now, let's not forget that Manasseh is also the one, according to Jewish tradition, who took the prophet Isaiah and had him sold into him. And Hebrews 11 makes a reference to how the righteous were even sawn into. two. It's believed it's a reference to Manasseh having Isaiah the prophet sawn in Verse eight points out the covenant that God made with Israel. Um, what were the terms of it? As long as they obeyed the covenant, God would keep them in the land and God would bless them. But look at what Manasseh does. Manasseh leads the people to break their covenant with God. Verse 9 is an astounding verse. Manasseh led God's people to be even more wicked than the nations that God drove out of the land of Canaan before he gave the land to Israel. That's astounding when you think about it. And then in verses 10 and following, God says that Manasseh is more responsible than perhaps anybody else for the fall of the southern kingdom. Imagine that. Judah has been flirting with disaster before, but now under Manasseh, her doom is sealed. Imagine being a leader who will forever be recorded in God's word as being the chief leader of the destruction of your people. Not something that you want to be known for. So that's the type of guy that he is. He he is truly a man without excuse. But secondly, I want you to see a nation on the brink. A nation on the brink. Verse 12 says that the judgment of God will be so bad on Judah that ears will tingle when they hear of it. Now, we know what's going to happen. Talk to me a minute. What is it that happens to Judah? Taken into captivity captivity by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. 605 uh, B.C., the first time they come in. And he destroys the temple, he destroys the walls around the city, uh, he kills off a bunch of people, but then what else does Nebuchadnezzar do? He destroys the temple, but what's he do with some of the cream of the crop? He takes them captive to Babylon where he's going to try to make Babylonian disciples out of him so they can help him reign over the Jews. If he can influence some of the Jews towards Babylonian ways and educate them in Babylonian ways and be sympathetic toward the Babylonians, he can have help ruling the Jewish people who took captive. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's plan. Beginning in verse 13, two different illustrations are used, one from the world of building and one right out of the kitchen. Verse 13 talks about a measuring line and a plumb line. These are items normally used in building, uh, but they're used here in the sense of tearing down. So essentially, God is saying by the same plumb line or measuring tool, that he judged the northern kingdom, he is also going to use that same standard to judge and destroy the southern kingdom. In other words, folks, God is just. God is just. It's like Billy Graham said on one occasion, if God doesn't judge America, then he's going to have to apologize to Solomon God's going to judge America just like He would any other nation because He's just. He's a just and a holy God. That's what's being communicated in in these verses here. God is just and just like He judged Israel, He's going to judge Judah. Judah can know that God will judge them because they witnessed God judging their brothers and sisters to the north. They've seen God judge Israel. So they ought to know it's coming. It's coming for them. And the second illustration he gives here, that judgment comes from the kitchen. Just like you would wipe a dish and turn it over to dry it off, God's going to wipe Judah. Now, to me, the perfect parallel to this in the Bible, uh, you would find it actually in the New Testament. We talked about it a month two awfully many months ago, comes out of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. God gave some principles there. You may remember that. If you'll turn over to uh, Galatians chapter 6 and begin reading with me there in verse 7. What's Paul saying? Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Uh, Paul plainly points out there, God is not going to be mocked. You know, one of the biggest lies and deceptions that Satan will tell people is that they can live in disobedience to God and be fine. Then, hey, sin doesn't matter. God, God's not going to judge you for that. And you know, that's what he told Eve, right? Eve, you can get away with it. Eat, eat of this fruit. Your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. You'll be enlightened. And isn't that the same kind of lies and deception Satan's still telling people today? He's telling us if we just get away from God's Word and God's commandments, we'll be free and we'll be fine. Nothing bad's going to happen. Same thing we see taking place in Bible days. But again, what's the Scripture saying? God will not be mocked. God sees everything about our lives. Psalm 10, verse 11, says of the person who buys into Satan's lies, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. But guess what? God does see. This age is full of people who have convinced themselves... Uh, of precisely that. That God doesn't care about our sin, God doesn't see, and whatever we do is hidden from Him. I've told you before, the, the little story about the little boy who the Sunday school teacher asked him in his class, who would you rather be, the rich man or Lazarus? And the little boy spoke up and said, well, I'd rather be a rich man in life and I'd like to be Lazarus after I'm dead. A lot of people are like that, you know I kind of want to have it both ways. But again, the problem with that is God is not mocked. When we went through Galatians, you may remember I told you the word mock comes from a word that would refer to a pig snout. In other words, it's making a reference to somebody who thinks they can thumb their nose at God. You won't thump your nose at God and get away with it. And uh, the harvest is always a product of the seed. A man reaps exactly what he sows. You don't sow green bean seeds and reap squash. You reap what you sow. And remember, Job 4 8 says, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. You plow iniquity and sow trouble, that's what you harvest. Now, what kind of sowing and reaping do humans actually do? Paul says there in Galatians, we can sow to the flesh. In that case, we'll reap Corruption. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, corruption refers to decay. You know, a a Christian who stumbles into that, not not a lifestyle, but stumbles into it, messes up, doesn't lose his salvation, but he is going to make his testimony wrong. Uh, And we'll also lose our joy. That's what happened to King David, remember, as he confessed his sin in Psalm 51. He said, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uh, We can likewise, hopefully, sow to the Spirit and reap everlasting life. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law Folks, we need to ask ourselves, what are we sowing? What are we sowing? And remember also what I told you in that Galatian study. We're going to reap more than we sow. You don't just sow a little kernel of corn and then just get a big stalk back with just one little kernel. You get an ear. You reap more than you sow. Things are intensifying. Uh, So again, that's that's principles that we see and and we reap later than we sow, right? And I think that's what's going on with whether it's this story in the Old Testament or people today, they might be doing something thinking, hey, I'm getting away with it. Nothing's happened. But you reap later than you sow. Payday Sunday is coming. Judgment Day is coming. Right? Israel and Judah thought they were getting away with everything they were doing. They could just live life any way they wanted to. They'd worship God a little and worship the gods of the pagan nations a little too and try to even sometimes blend the two together. Hey, everything just seems to be going fine. And they brought all this idolatry in But guess what? Payday Sunday came. God dealt with the northern kingdom and God was going to deal with the southern kingdom too. They weren't going to get away with it. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. God doesn't allow his children to sin successfully. That's true, isn't it? Well, let me change gears a minute because if we ended here with Manasseh, we'd all say what? Boo, 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 right? And and that's how First Kings would leave it. Uh, uh, Second Kings, rather. That's how it would leave it. But that's not the end of the story, and this is why I've told you over these past few, <clears throat> more than a few weeks now. You have to also turn to Chronicles and read some of the parallel passages that go with it, right? And that's what I want us to do thirdly because what you're going to see here thirdly is a God of the second chance. A God of the second chance. 2 Chronicles 33. And let's begin reading in verse 10 of 2 Chronicles 33. 33. It says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. 2 Chronicles 33. Did I not give you enough time to get there? Do I need to read it again? Let me read it again for those who just got there. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his uh, entry and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Wow. Apparently, as we're told here, Manasseh has displeased the Assyrians in some way. Uh, they come and capture him in a, in a violent way and haul him off. And what does the Lord do with this experience of Vanessa's? Humbles him. You know, God, will God bring trials and hardships into your life to kind of break you and humble you? And wake you up and get your attention? Yeah. Some people, he'll get them flat on their back before they ever look up, right? That's what he does with Manasseh. And it it has the desired effect. Manasseh turned to the Lord. And the Bible says that the Lord heard him. Folks, this is an amazing act of God's grace. It reminds me of the thief on the cross when he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did he tell the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Here Manasseh has done all this evil. I mean, nobody other than Ahab and Jezebel in the northern kingdom have come close to rivaling some of the evil that Manasseh has done. He's done all this bad stuff. But God humbles him and breaks him. He cries out to God. God hears him and delivers him. And then what's Manasseh begin doing? He begins, he sets out to undo all the evil that he had done earlier. What would you call that? Repentance. Repentance. that just goes to show that When God changes a man, the man's changed right from the inside out. Believe it or not, I fully expect you'll meet Manasseh in heaven. I mean, if we would have just stopped at 2 Kings, I mean, we would have just said, he's in trouble today. He's in hell. But I believe Manasseh, he ended up saved despite all the evil that he did. He turned away from it, called on the name of the Lord, repented, and got things right in the land. He, he ends up being somebody who knows the Lord. And now he's encouraging people to serve the Lord. He's the true and the living God. Only he is God. Wow. Wow. I mean, that, this this is one of the most radical changes in the scripture at this point. Yeah. So God has used hardship and suffering in his life to wake him up. Now, unfortunately, if you go back to 2 Kings 21 and were to pick up reading at verse 19 about Ammon, Manasseh's son he didn't follow in the footsteps of his dad after his dad got right with the Lord. He followed all the bad things that his dad had done. And what happens to him? He quickly passes off the throne just two years into his reign. Uh, He's killed. His rule is just watching the night, and when he's killed and passes off the throne, nobody is sorry to see him go. Uh, The great theologian uh, Carl F.H. Henry once wrote, he said, we live in the twilight of a great civilization Amid the deepening decline of modern culture, those strange beast empires of the books of Daniel and Revelation seem already to be stalking and sprawling over the surface of the earth. That's what we see here, is it not? The Babylonians are about to come on the scene. And then after them will be who? The Medo-Persians. And then after them is the Greeks. Then after them the Romans. God's judgment is about to be released. The lock on the gate's about to be taken off, the gate open, and allowing God's judgment to get out and to do what God's judgment does. Israel and Judah, once shining lights, are now growing dim and fading. Sad, isn't it? Well, (laughs) let me give you some lessons as takeaways. Leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. And it can be bad or good. Judah had good leaders who pointed the people of God, appointed the people to God, and they had bad leaders who pulled them away from God. What kind of leaders do we desire? You know, the Bible says, though, in the last days, we'll heap teachers and leaders, leaders around us who will only tell us what our itching ears want to hear. Even in in the church. Paul is talking about leaders in the church. We'll accumulate those who just tell us what we want to hear. Scratch our itches. But we need leaders in the church and in the culture who won't just tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. I mentioned Charles Spurgeon a moment ago. uh, How he He said God never allows His children to sin successfully. We will not get away with rebellion. Third, godly parents can have a wonderful influence over their children but they cannot determine the faith or character of their children. Each person is accountable. And then finally, God is the God of the second chance. He allows U-turns. Any questions or comments? I would wonder, well, God meant for man and woman. man. He
0: didn't say you can marry it in Right. So, to me, all the kings have for me. Why? Is that why the children were so experienced and all of it? Because they have different
2: and problems. I'm sure that was part of it, but... They had bad examples. A lot of what Manasseh probably did had, if you think about it, had probably ruined Ammon in some ways. His son Ammon, his son Ammon, was wicked like him. Maybe, maybe by then Ammon had seen so much bad example from his dad, he didn't pay much attention to his dad's conversion. Uh, you know, but probably, probably the sons saw a whole lot of bad stuff in their dads that influence them that direction yeah oh yeah and it starts there in the home with the godly union between husband and wife right marriage God's way yeah it's not a guarantee but kids with that have that advantage yeah
0: I'm gonna ramble for a minute, and then I'd like for you to take it and make something out of it. fitting as a group. I'll, pa-
2: I'll pass that along to Brandon today. Okay. Good. All right. Uh,
0: and the bottom line is, God is amazing. Yeah. Okay. As a got sick, mm-hmm. God gave him 15 years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Manasseh was 12 right. when he began to reign. Right. So he was born during those fifteen years. Yeah. So I used to say, God, why didn't you give him fifteen years? You let that rascal Manasseh get in there, you know? Yeah. But it's probably because Hezekiah had no issue. So God knew way back when he created Manasseh that he was gonna I mean Hezekiah that he was gonna give him fifteen years. And that the line of Jesus was going to come during these 15 years. And that's amazing to me. So can you make that theological or something?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, you look at some of the characters in the Old Testament, and they're just that. They're characters. Good and bad. I mean, look at some of the people in the genealogy of Jesus and, and how God redeemed them and used them. I mean, you look God at
0: God planned in that fifteen years that Manasseh was going to be born, mm-hmm. and He planned that I and other people would learn that He's a God of second chances. Because if God can save Manasseh, He can save
2: anybody. He, he can save me. I, yep. I'm not as bad as Manasseh. Yep. Yeah, he can save anybody. Sure. He gives us all hope. Yep. It does. Mm-hmm. You ended up making good sense out of that. Yes, I'm glad. I'm glad. Rick, that passage you
1: quoted, or read rather, from the Second Chronicles, I think it was. Uh-huh. Um, it says that uh, he knew that the Lord was God, uh-huh. and uh, I think he, you know, his father, you know, being a co-regent with him that period of time, he had to see. His actions and see his relationship, but he never had a relationship of his own. He knew of God but right. didn't know God. It kind of makes me think of that A.W. Tozer book, "The Knowledge of the Holy." Yeah. You know, but uh, and, and the old saying too: God doesn't have grandchildren. That's, yeah. But uh, you know, I mean, I see God's grace in the lineage of Jesus and Joseph's line where Coniah who had been, had been prophesied or Jacobiah in the Old Testament would no descendant of his would ever prosper on the throne of David Yeah. but it's interesting how God bypassed that bloodline because he wasn't Christ's actual father so God just worked right around it I mean he had the legal right of Joseph and the blood right through Mary to be Messiah
2: King. Amazing. Yep. God works in spite of our disobedience. What else? Do you think stand out to you in particular?
1: I think one, I think kind of going off on what Kathy was saying a little bit, if you look at the general theme of the whole Bible, it's the stories of redemption. Absolutely. And it's one story of redemption after another story of redemption. And it's all intertwined. you got all of these terrible people, but what do we see? The God of the second chance bringing about redemption for mm-hmm. this evil person. Is this one story right after the
2: other. That it's all linked into the New Testament, mm-hmm. where we say the ultimate redemption of man. Absolutely. And that's sort of the The individual stories tie into the meta area, big storyline of redemption of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Going from a garden to a garden. Right. And and that's why we need to be reading through our Bibles. Too many people just kind of jump around in their Bible and read it as all of these just disconnected stories. And they never see how it all dovetails together and fits. And that's why we need to be reading through Scripture constantly. Uh, Because the more we do that, the more we see, uh aha, how everything is just dovetailing. And all of these stories of redemption, they link together. Point to the Redeemer. And how God is ultimately going to make all things new. Yeah.
1: You see uh, just this week, the LDS church. Mm-hmm. They have taken so they're pretty strict, right? Except that whole polygamy thing, as far as the church. <laughs> 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 so you see where they're not putting in their doctrine, but they're saying. Same sex marriages is okay in order just to get along. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't and see that. Uh, when you start seeing that, I mean we're seeing it in our Christian churches today, other denominations mm-hmm. and stuff. And it just the writing's on the wall. I mean, this and if you see over there, I think the United Arab, Arab Emirates, there's this uh, re religion thing coming together. Mm-hmm. The sons are all connected to Abraham. Mm-hmm. It's setting up the one world religion. Yeah. it's all I mean just look at it it's so plain you should shouldn't take it by surprise
2: no and they'll eventually come for Bible believing Christians who won't bend the knee. and we can expect that and You? Uh, yeah you, absolutely Bible, you, is yeah true this could be called hate speech oh yeah yeah they're They're eventually coming for us in some way just by simply preaching and believing the Bible.